The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, good morning. How are we this morning? It's good to see you all. It is good to be back in Temple in the area with both feet on the ground. We have been traveling like crazy. Did a long road trip to Georgia. Then it was two weeks of impact, camp, then clubs. Then a road trip to Colorado. All that to say, I am done driving for the summer. So no more of that for me. So um, I'm glad you guys could be here this morning with us. We're going to be in Mark chapter 8, looking at verses 27 through 9, 13 this morning. And... uh, Last week we saw Jesus heals this blind man, and we see that he does miracles with a purpose. He never just does them random, they're not random tricks, he does these things on purpose. And he heals a blind man at first partially and then fully, and this was meant to depict the disciples who were beginning to see who Jesus is, but they still couldn't see fully who he was. And until now, Jesus has directed his teaching to the crowds, but from this point forward he's going to focus on his disciples. And so we look at Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 27, where it says, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others, others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, Well, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So just as his miracles had purpose and intentionality, so did the locations that he picked. He chose to ask questions like this. So the location here is significant. This is Caesarea Philippi. It's about 25 miles north of Bethsaida where he healed the blind guy. And he is sitting at the foot of Mount Hermon, which is a beautiful area. This is a picture of it today. And this is the ruins of a temple, several temples that are located there. It was named after Augustus Caesar and Herod Philip. And there were temples that were dedicated to Baal worship and also the Greek god Pan. And then later, Caesar himself. Many of you know, of course, that the Caesars became, were seen as gods to that part of the world. And so it's interesting because in Greek mythology, the god Pan ruled over shepherds and hunters. And so right here, the good shepherd, Jesus, poses this question. He says, who do people say that I am? Now, normally, in the disciple-rabbi relationship, disciples are the ones that ask the questions. And the rabbis answer, but nothing about Jesus is normal. So he puts a question to them, and he turns the tables a bit. He, He puts a question to his disciples And the first question is just a setup for the second question, because he already knows what people are saying about him. He knows what they've been saying. So some think that he's John the Baptist resurrected, or maybe he's Elijah reincarnated. Maybe he's a prophet. And uh, but he really wants to know from his disciples, well, who do you say that I am? He wants to put the question to them. And as always, we know who the first person to respond is going to be, right? It's going to be Peter. And he says, you are the Christ. And this, for Peter, this would mean that you're, you're the Messiah. You're the anointed one. And, but as we're going to see in a moment, the, the title Christ doesn't mean what Peter thinks it means. For the disciples, it meant you're the one that's going to stomp on Rome's neck. You're the one that's going to set us free. You're the one that's going to liberate us from Roman oppression. But in these next verses, Jesus explains what it means for him to be the Christ and what it's going to mean for them 
later on. This is why he tells them to keep quiet because they still had much that they had to learn about who he was. Look with me at verse 31. It says, and he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So this section begins a a journey to Jerusalem for the disciples and Jesus. And up to this point, his ministry has been mainly in Galilee. And the next few chapters are going to detail their move towards Jerusalem. Now, whenever you read the Bible, I want to encourage you to try to get inside the minds and hearts of the characters that you're reading about and empathize with them and understand that what you and I take for granted to be true is we know the end of the story. They didn't know that information. So when you, when you see their reactions to things, understand that this is all new information to them. So we take this for granted because we know the rest of the story. But what Jesus says here was totally shocking for them to hear. And now he's speaking to them very plainly. So there's no more parables, no more veiled statements. They might, they might expect the Messiah to suffer at the hands of Rome, but Jesus says here the rejection is going to come from the inside. The disciples might have wished that the Jewish leaders and that the Messiah were on the same team, unified against Roman oppression, but Jesus says his suffering is going to come from the hands of the religious elite. This is the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, this would be total and complete rejection from the religious establishment of Israel. And all of this would have been so surprising for them to hear. Now it says here that the Son of Man, Jesus says the Son of Man must suffer. So some may ask, well, why did Jesus have to suffer and die? If you're not yet a Christian, or maybe you're a new Christian, maybe you're an older Christian, maybe you've wrestled with that question, why did, why did Jesus, or why did someone have to suffer and die for our sins, for our sake? Why couldn't, I mean, God is God, why couldn't God just snap his fingers and say, if you're repentant, then you're forgiven? Why couldn't it work like that? But there are some, there are some legal dimensions to this. Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11 says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. And then Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. So sin required this blood sacrifice, this substitute, in order for, 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 to atone for our sins. So there's a legal dimension to this, but I don't want you to miss the, the personal dimension here. Forgiveness always involves suffering, even in our relationships. If someone steals from us, either they're going to pay for it, or if we just forgive, we have to absorb the cost, we have to pay for it. You know, someone has to pay for what's happened. I think back many years ago, when we first moved to Temple, my wife Courtney and I first moved here before we had kids, um, we just got this house and um, something was wrong with the a ceiling fan, I think, in the back of the house and, and also something in the front of the house. And so we called this electrical company to come over and, and, and try to fix it. And I'm at the house while they're doing the work. I'm at the front of the house working on some stuff in my office. And Courtney, I think, went to the gym. And then these guys did their work. I paid them. 
And then they left, and then I went to the church, and then Courtney calls me about an hour later, and she says, Dave, my diamond engagement ring is gone. It's missing. And so we, of course, think that this guy that was back there in the bedroom had taken it and stolen it. And so, um, so now my blood starts boiling. Like, how am I, I just want to get the thing back. I don't really care about you know, getting someone in trouble. I just want get, to get the ring back. And how can I do that? So I call the police. They come over. They're looking around, looking in the room for the ring with me. And we can't find it. So we have this plan. And the plan is, I'm going to try to call these guys back under the idea that something is not, is not working and they're, they're supposed to fix and get them back to the house, and the cops are going to be there waiting for them. And so in my head, I start thinking of scenes like the theme music from Cops is playing in my head as I'm preparing for this, and it's turning into a pretty exciting Wednesday for me. And, uh, and so um, the guys show back up to the house, and the police are there waiting for them, and they search their person, they search the truck. Have you ever tried to find anything in an electrician's truck? It's like finding a needle in a haystack. So we did not find this ring as hard as we looked for it. And for a few weeks after this, I am just angry at the world and just how we've been violated in this way. I mean, I I poured blood, sweat, and tears into that ring. And so, of course, insurance will pay for a replacement, but it's just not the same thing. And so I struggled with forgiveness in this situation. But here's the reality. Whenever someone takes something from you, Either they're going to have to pay the price for it, or if we absorb the cost, we have to pay for it. And so forgiveness is always costly, and it always involves suffering. Or what if someone, just in a more personal way, what if you're close with some? What if they end up gossiping about you or spreading rumors about you, and and you and I, we often want to get revenge in those situations and pay this person back. I like what Tim Keller says in one of his books. He says, however, to refrain from lashing out at someone when you want to do so with all your being is agony. It is a form of suffering. You not only suffer the original loss of happiness, reputation, opportunity, but now you forego the consolation of inflicting the same on them. You are absorbing the debt, taking the cost of it completely on yourself instead of taking it out on the other person. It hurts terribly, and many people would say it feels like a kind of death. You see, forgiveness, it always involves suffering. And if we bear suffering in our human relationships, then how much more does Christ suffer whenever he bears our sin upon himself on that cross? You see, it shouldn't surprise us to hear that the Messiah must suffer because forgiveness is always costly and forgiveness always involves suffering. But for them, the disciples, a suffering Messiah was an unthinkable idea. So Peter, of course, it's always Peter, he begins to rebuke Jesus. But then it says, but turning and seeing the disciples, Jesus turns and sees his disciples You see, there's a time for a private rebuke, but sometimes there's a time for a public rebuke. And so Jesus sees the need to be, to rebuke Peter publicly here because the other disciples might fall prey to the same kind of thinking. So he rebukes Peter in front of everyone, and the word for rebuke is epitomeo, which is the same word used when Jesus rebukes demons. And not only that, But Jesus refers to Peter as Satan. If Jesus calls you Satan, that's a bad day for you. (laughs) 
So why such harsh words for Peter? Well, if you recall at the outset of Christ's ministry, Satan takes Jesus up onto a mountaintop and he tempts Jesus and he says, if you, he says, I will give you all these kingdoms if you will bow down and worship me. And Satan wants Jesus to use the world's methods to take the kingdom right there on that mountaintop. And you see, Peter's making the same mistake. He is saying to Jesus, no, no, no. You can have the crown without the cross. And so in a way, he is, unbeknownst to him, he is doing the same thing that Satan did several years prior You see, Satan's way is glory without suffering, but God's way is suffering transformed into glory. And I think you and I fall for the same temptation today. We want glory without suffering. We want glory but no suffering. You see, these disciples, they saw their their biggest problem as external, outside themselves. They, They saw their biggest problem as being liberated from Roman oppression, or maybe they saw the problem as the, the, the religious elite that we've heard so much about. But I think we do the same kind of thing today. We see the world or the culture as our biggest enemy, but the, but the cross implies something different. The cross implies that our biggest problem is in here. It's external. It's in the heart. I think Peter failed to see that, and I think sometimes we, we fail to see the same thing as well. Look with me in verse 34. And it says... And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So now Jesus is no longer just addressing the disciples. He now turns to the crowd as well, and he invites the crowd to come over. And he says, if somebody wants to be my disciple, they must deny themselves. This does not mean to deny one's personality or just deny things like a monk, but it means to turn away from the idolatry of self-interest. We live in a world that glories in the self, that glorifies the self, that takes pride in the self. And this mindset, I think, can bleed over into how we live out our Christian faith. But denying ourselves means that we surrender our will to God's will. You see, there's this initial surrender when you and I first come to Christ, but there's also this, this daily surrender, this dying to self that's a continual surrender throughout our lives. You know, our world tells us we've got to find ourselves. Everyone's looking for themselves. Everyone's got to go find themselves. But according to Jesus, we lose ourselves so we can find him. You see, ironically, whenever we live for ourselves, we actually devalue the self. If we're all created in God's image, created to honor and worship and glorify God, If that's why we've been created, then whenever we do that to ourselves, we actually devalue ourselves. We're not seeing ourselves in light of who God made us to be. So whenever we live this kind of self-centric life, we actually devalue the self. And you and I, we can gain all the world has to offer. We can chase money, success, 
popularity. We can even build ourselves a rocket and fly into space for about 10 minutes. But in the end, we have nothing apart from Christ. Or in our world sometimes, what you might see in the Christian world is maybe people using the church or co-opting faith to prop up success or to, to grab at life or to build a bigger business or to network. This can happen even in the church. But at some point, reality is going to hit us that we are called to suffer just like Jesus. And the disciples were surprised to hear that this Messiah, this Christ figure, would suffer and die, equally surprised that they would have to suffer as well. And you see, there are two parts to this statement. There's deny yourself, but there's also take up one's cross. There's this command to take up one's cross. Now, what does that mean? You know, many of us use that phrase when referring to an inconvenience or an irritation. We say things like, well, it's just, it's just my cross to bear. And usually it's in reference to something small and minuscule. Well, you see, in the Roman Empire, if somebody was condemned to die by crucifixion, the criminal was forced to, to carry a cross through the city to the place of execution. And this was a humiliating experience, but it also demonstrated something. It demonstrated that person's submission and obedience to the authority against which they had rebelled in this case, Rome. So Jesus, being the innocent one, when he took up his cross, and he's making that journey to Golgotha, it demonstrated submission to the Father. But whenever you and I take up our cross, it means to submit to whatever comes our way as a follower of Christ. And we live under that submission. It means obedience in the face of persecution, obedience in the face of suffering, obedience even in the face of death itself. You see, the disciples, they had difficulty believing that Jesus would suffer and die. And I know for us today, we don't have trouble believing, we've been taught that since we were young, that that's what he came to, to live and live this perfect life and suffer and die on a cross and pay the price for our sins and then resurrect on the third day. We're taught that from a young age. So we don't have the problem here that Jesus would come and suffer and die. We've got another problem. We believe Jesus suffered so that we don't have to. I like what Dallas Willard says in one of his books. He says, many Christians believe that Jesus suffered so we don't have to, but true discipleship is a call to come suffer with Jesus. Many of us see the cross as just this event in history that unfolded on our behalf and it offers us redemption and salvation, but there is a sense in which our lives should be shaped by the cross. And we are called to cross-shaped discipleship. This thread of self-denial and sacrifice should run through our lives. Whenever I do a wedding, I always quote Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, and I always look at the, the man and I say, Ephesians 5 says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. But all of life should have this thread to it. This thread of self-denial and sacrifice should run through our lives. Look with me down at chapter 9, verse 1. It says, and he said to them, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. 
There are many interpretations for this, this passage, but it's broadly accepted among the scholars that Jesus is talking about the transfiguration, which is about to happen here in the next few verses. It's, it's as if Jesus is saying, you know, all this talk about suffering and death, that I'm going to suffer and that you're actually going to suffer as well on my, uh, for the sake of the kingdom. It's as if Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you a glimpse of glory that you're not going to ever forget. And so look with me at verse 2. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them, and there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So six days pass. And Jesus selects Peter, James, and John, takes them up on this high mountain, and here they witness the transfiguration. The word transfigure means, uh, it, 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 it comes from the, the Greek root word, which we also get metamorphosis from that. It means a change on the outside that comes from the inside. It means a change on the outside that comes from the inside. This is different than the word masquerade, which is an outward change, that doesn't come from within. So in this moment, Jesus allows his glory to radiate through his entire being, and he allows these three people to witness it firsthand. So why does he give them this experience? Well, I think he's saying that even though I'm going to suffer and that you're going to suffer, I don't want you to forget that glory is coming. So let me give you this, this moment in time, glimpse of glory, my glory, let me see, let me show you how it radiates from within my being. Let me show you who I really am. And so he's given them something that they can look back on and that they can hang on to. So whenever they do see him on that cross, bleeding out, and whenever they are faced with suffering and persecution themselves, they can be thinking about that moment. They can be thinking about that time that Jesus showed them that glory is coming. And I think God, listen, I've never seen anything like this before. But I think God still has ways of giving us things to hang on to. Especially in moments of suffering. He still gives you glimpses and glimmers. I think of what's happened in our church really the last eight years, really. But there's been moments where he's given us things to hang on to. Things we can look at and say, yes, I saw how you showed up there. I saw what you did there. God has ways of doing that in his grace. And it's a gracious act. It's a blessing that we get to partake in those kinds of things. I think of more recently, we did uh, two weeks of impact. We did impact camp. We did impact clubs, of course, back in, in June. And I don't know what it was about this year, but it seemed like there was just something different in a positive way. Where it just felt like our kids just really were hungry for this. And they were so excited to take the gospel to the city through Bible clubs. And so we saw that all through camp and all through club week, that it was just, it just felt different. I don't know if it's because we missed a year, what, what, what caused that, but um, we saw the spirit move in some powerful ways. I even got some text messages and some emails from some, from some parents that said things like, my son told me this was the best two weeks of his life. And they were serious. And I think God has ways of giving us moments like that 
that you can look back on and say, like, I, I saw you work there. I saw you do something there. And those can be powerful things. I praise God that the Christian life is not like this, a flat line. That it gives us those things to hang on to. And I think that's why he's doing that here for these disciples. And I don't know why he selects these three. And he says, don't talk about it. But he selects these three. And I think he's doing this in a very intentional way. But it also, I think he does this to show that he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. This is why Elijah and Moses show up. I don't think it was random. I don't think he just like drew, drew straws up in heaven, like who wants to go down and be a part of this, this crazy moment? It's intentional. He picks Elijah and Moses because Elijah represented the prophets and Moses represented the law. And if you look over in Luke chapter 9, It's amazing to think about this conversation. Over in Luke chapter 9, we see more detail in that gospel where it says that Elijah, Jesus, and Moses are conversing about Jesus' coming departure, his death. They're having a conversation about Jesus' death right there on the mountaintop, and these disciples get to witness that and be a part of that. And so out of all the billions of people who have lived, these three, Peter, James, and John, are chosen to experience this and standing there with the Messiah, with Moses and Elijah. And so the question is, what would you say in such a moment? Well, we know what Peter says in verse five. In verse five, it says this. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, One for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. So usually a good rule of life. If you don't know what to say, you can finish the sentence, right? You you don't say anything, but then... Then there's Peter. So when Peter doesn't know what to say, he just starts talking. He just starts yammering on and on and on. And he just starts firing a bunch of arrows, hoping it'll hit the target. And remember, the gospel of Mark is mainly sourced by Peter. So this is some real self-disclosure going on here. I can just imagine him saying to John Mark, look, I I mean, these guys showed up. I mean, Elijah and Moses, two people that we venerate throughout our faith. And Jesus is just blowing up with radiance And what am I supposed to say? I just started talking and talking and talking and saying all these things, and this is what I said. He starts talking about tents and tabernacles. And so right after Peter opens up his mouth, this cloud engulfs them, and they hear this voice, and they hear the voice of the Father speaking out and saying, this is my son, listen to him, which is Greek for be quiet, Peter. And I I can even hear John saying, you know, good job, Peter. You made everybody disappear, right? And so why does Peter want to make these tents for each one? Well, maybe he wants to prolong the experience. Maybe these are booths in reference to the Feast of Tabernacles. But if you look closely, Peter is making the same mistake of the others. He is putting Jesus on the same level as Moses and Elijah. But then the Father has something to say about that. You see, Moses and Elijah, they don't get tabernacles. They're not on the same level as Jesus. 
But even Jesus doesn't need a tabernacle because he is a tabernacle. The Old Testament tabernacle was God's way of dwelling with Israel. But when Jesus came in the flesh, he was called Emmanuel. This means God with us. You don't need a tent when you have the real thing. And so no one here needs a tabernacle. And over in verse 8, after Peter opens his mouth, Moses and Elijah disappear and Jesus is left there alone. And that's really important because the purpose of the law and the prophets was to point to Jesus. And so here on this mountain, the two men representing the law and the prophets, they vanish and Jesus is left standing. The law and prophets were, had fulfilled their purpose and their purpose was Jesus. And it was all pointing to him. And so there he is standing on that mountain all by himself with those disciples. Look with me down at verse 9. It says, And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah, that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. So if you and I experience this powerful moment, what is the first thing we would do? We want to go tell everybody. I I can't keep quiet about that. I want to go tell everybody, but Jesus says, no, 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 don't, don't tell anybody because it's not the right time. It's not the right time. Then they began asking questions about Elijah. You see, it was prophesied that a forerunner would come before the Messiah and his ministry would be like that of Elijah in the spirit and power of Elijah, and this was going to be John the Baptist. And Jesus, when he says Elijah, he's referring to John the Baptist, this figure that's going to be a forerunner to his ministry, and Jesus says, look what happened to John the Baptist. Even he suffered, and he was killed. So why would that not be true also of the Son of Man? So I want to circle back around to the original question when Jesus says, who do you say that I am? So I want to ask you that question, who do you say that Jesus is? That is the most important question that anyone will answer. The person who can answer that Jesus is God, that he is the Messiah, that he is my Savior. That person is called a disciple, a follower, a student of Jesus. Dallas Willard writes, a disciple is a person who has decided that the most important thing in their life is to learn how to do what Jesus said to do. A disciple is not a person who has things under control or knows a lot of things Disciples simply are people who are constantly revising their affairs to carry through on their decision to follow Jesus. So I grew up in a Christian family, grew up going to church, just like many of you, and I was saved at a fairly early age, baptized I think around the age of seven, but then I realized as I began to enter into like junior high and trying to separate myself and identify myself as as different from the family or different from certain friends, I began to realize there would be a cost to following Jesus. 
I was putting my identity in many things, relationships and sports and popularity and living life for myself. And I think it was around eighth grade. I was already getting into some relationships and this one was starting to walk off into sin and I felt convicted by that and, and God was doing a work in me as I realized that there'd be a cost to following him. And I'll never forget one night at my church. My church did a lot of public invitations. We were of that tradition. And, and uh, I used to run sound with another guy in the back of the church because I wanted to give myself something to do during the service. And I was sitting there one night, and, and, the, and the person speaking just, God spoke powerfully to me that night. And never forget, as they're, they're having the invitation to come down front and pray with someone or talk with someone, I felt compelled and so I look at the guy next to me and I said, hey, do you have this? And he says, I have this. And so I got up out of that sound booth and I walked down and I prayed with one of the elders of our church that night. And I, I believe I was already a Christian, but I began to realize at that point of life, it was a pivotal, pivotal moment for me that following him came with a cost. And that was a good thing. And I've seen that throughout my life on more than one occasion, that following Jesus has a cost to it. But it's, it's one that is worth paying. It's one that is, is worth putting our faith and trust in his finished work on the cross on our behalf. And you'll see this. There's, this. there's this initial surrender, but then there's also this continual surrender as we live out our lives to glorify him. I love what C.S. Lewis says. He writes, give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him. And with him, everything else thrown in. Let's pray. God, thank you for making a way for us by your grace, by your mercy. Thank you for bearing the ultimate cost, bearing the ultimate suffering on our behalf on the cross. God, thank you for how you change lives. Thank you for how we can look back on moments that you have shown up in powerful ways that we can't even explain, but we know you're at work. And God, thank you for how those moments get us through uh, difficult times. And God, I pray for anyone sitting here this morning that, that may not know you. God, I pray that they would just come to understand that the answer to that question, who do we say that you are, is the most important question they will ever answer in their life. And I pray that this morning that they would come to you and surrender and come to you in repentance and call out to you this morning for salvation, that you would save them miraculously and transform them and that we can live on mission alongside them here in our city for your sake and for your gospel and for your kingdom. We pray this in your name, amen.